Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 307. Today is Sunday, the 16th of December, 2018. And first, a quick shout out and thanks to Kenneth for his podcast review on iTunes. I'd love it if you'd all consider dropping in your rating too. And just before introducing my next guest, I also want to point out that I'm happy to feature your questions. For this purpose, I've set up a specific email, nminterdial at gmail.com, to which you can send me an audio file and your question, and I'll endeavor to answer it on the following podcast. On to my guest, who is Nefez Dukak, CEO of the London office of the Queen Rania Foundation for Education and Development. As CEO, Nefez led the team behind idrak.org, an online learning initiative, or MOOC, of the Queen Rania Foundation, and he's currently the executive chairman. Idrak serves over 1 million learners across the Arab world for K-12 as well as continuous learning. Through its partnership with edX, the Idrak platform provides courses in Arabic taught and developed at the top-tier institutions such as HarvardX, MITx, and UC BerkeleyX. In this conversation with Nafez, we learn about this fascinating personal journey. We look at how Idrak came to be, its curriculum and business model, how it has grown, and the challenges for the future of this important initiative. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Nafez Dakak, great to have you on the show. You and I share an alma mater in the United States, up in New Haven, and uh, we also share a friend, um, and that is how we met. And I was interested to hear about your project. You're the executive chairman of IDRAC. You're also the CEO of QRF UK, uh, so you're going to get to explain all that. Tell us, Nafez, just to begin with, uh, who you are and what's your background. Um, sure. Thank you so much uh, for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'll start maybe sort of just talking generally and try to provide a bit more context. I've always sort of been interested in education. The reason I've gone into education is I'm excited about tapping into the potential of people. And I think the way sort of maybe something we discussed often at our alma mater is education is sort of a method to empowerment and mm-hmm. sort of looking at sort of my part of the world, the Arab world or the Middle East, that's been something that's always sort of, I guess, bothered me or something I wanted to create an impact on. Uh, so I started off in consulting, but sort of quickly moved to work for the Queen Rania Foundation. And that's sort of where, uh, under sort of the vision and auspices of Her Majesty, we uh, kicked off Idrak, which is today the largest online learning platform, uh, open, free for Arabic-speaking learners across the uh, the region, uh, sort of spent around, I'd say, to, to keep it short, five years doing that, and now I've transitioned to the board, and I now run the London office of the Queen Rania Foundation. And to maybe give a more context about the foundation, to keep it very short, we try to find what works in education and think, then think about scaling it. Uh, perhaps the most salient question, given everything we hear in the news about the refugee crisis and the recent global monitoring report that came out today uh, on refugee learning or just education in general, but looking at refugee learning, the quintessential question we're trying to answer is if you have a refugee child uh, that's missed X years of schooling, how do you get her back up to speed in sort of X over two, X over three to make sure she's well integrated back into the public education system and learning with her peers and how do we tap into that latent potential? Cool. So um, the fact that you went to Yale uh, as a Palestinian, this notion of educating 
Arabs or in Arabic anyway is something that you might you might hear in circles saying, well, education is the key, and you know there's talk about you know educating women. If you're an educated woman means ten educated or better, uh, or you know some some statistic about how educating women is also a great thing. To what extent is that part of the narrative, and is that maybe part of the motivation uh, to have accessible, good quality education? Um, I, I'd say so. There are two parts of that. The part of that sort of, I guess, personal narratives. You know, growing up, and ironically, maybe this is sort of something I wrote my Yale essay about. You know, the value of education to a Palestinian family. You know, you grow up. There's this. Um, you know, your parents constantly. You know, going by. You know, as a Palestinian, you've lost everything. So, kind of a refugee. The only thing you can hold on to is your education. You're learning. The only way to make the world a better place is to work hard and get educated. And then at some point in time, you realize, you no, know, I can't do this alone. So. If me being educated isn't enough, then how do I get as many people in the region uh, as educated as possible? Uh, so that's sort of the personal narrative that I have into this. And then when we sort of talk about Idraq, which is sort of an online learning platform, if you look at the region, you know, the demand for higher education has increased, I'd say, a little over fourfold in the last sort of four decades. Uh, and sort of demand is sort of highly sort of quickly outstripping uh, supply. And also, I'd say the quality of the supply is sort of questionable. You obviously have maybe some sort of beacons of hope, but generally speaking, you know, not a single university, at least on the higher education level, in the top 100. You can sort of make similar arguments in K-12. So with the advent of the internet and have around 150 maybe million around 150 million Arabic speakers online across the region a number that's growing at 20% so we'll double probably in, in under five years so a lot of that together with the lack of Arabic access to Arabic content online tells you know there's an opportunity here to provide access in Arabic to a large number of people the last piece of the puzzle I'd quickly add is over 70% of people in the in, in the Arab world do not speak English or sort of not enough at a, where they can sort of learn and consume English. So if you look at the English proficiency index, the Middle East, uh, North Africa is probably the, the worst region. It was last year. I assume it be the same again in 2018, the worst region in the world in terms of English proficiency. So it's very key to make sure uh, we provide content resources for them in Arabic so that they don't miss out on everything we're talking about with the sort of learning online revolution, et cetera. All right, so you've got the personal story about being a refugee and, and then understanding how refugees get stripped out of educational system and then therefore don't feel they have access to education. Uh, there's also this uh, notion that there's not enough English speakers because most of the content today is, is English. When you go about trying to create the curriculums you have on, you need to explain to us what type of offers you have. Is the curriculum going to be around certain board certifications and primary type of education for, let's say, basic Arabic, basic English, or basic maths? And then how do you you select the different types of materials you want to teach? That's a fantastic question. I I think I'll try to answer it in in two parts. First, I'll talk about sort of the higher education components. I say historically up until the beginning of this year, Idraq, our sort of online learning platform, only offered sort of higher education, tertiary education material. We launched a K-12 segment earlier this year, and so I'll answer both separately. On the higher education segment, I'd say, you know, we really tried to look at demand from two components. One is sort of understand what employers want and what are the skills they want, and then understand what learners want and what do they feel the gap is. And this is really around 
trying to answer the question of currency. What is this online degree or online course certificate worth uh, for, for students so, uh, or learners? So we end up uh, you know, offering a lot of courses that might not be as intuitive or at least not offered in public universities. So how to write a resume how to look for a job, how to freelance, a lot of skills that are maybe sort of more, I guess, applicable and less academic. But at the same time, you know, we, we look at, I try to identify gaps that employers say they'd like to see more of. So collaborative working, uh, st- STEM uh, skills, programming, etc. So I say that is on the higher education component. Uh, on the K-12 component, I think, you know, one important maybe paradigm here is thinking about not just about how do you offer a good product, but how do you offer a good program. So in the sense, whatever we offer really needs to slot in as easily as possible into the day of a busy school teacher. Mm-hmm. But, and again, there's sort of multiple use cases or similar. Let's say there are three use cases for our K-12 program. There's sort of teachers using it in the classroom for sort of more differentiated, personalized instruction, if you want to use that buzzword. Uh, there's sort of remediation, uh, students that sort of want catch up and students that are advanced uh, so sort of more personalized but self-directed learning and I'd say the third um, use case is really for I'd say what we maybe we can broadly call sort of caregivers or care workers or aid refugee workers in refugee camps that are not particularly skilled enough to guide, to maybe lead the learning process but can guide younger learners on the process. So with that in mind, we've tried to make sure the content is as aligned as possible with curriculum, a national curriculum. So we, right now we are working on aligning it with the Jordanian, Syrian, and uh, Egyptian curricula with the idea eventually to expand uh, to other national curricula in the Arab world as funding comes on board. So we've started with mathematics funded by google.org. Uh, and then, uh, and we've recently, you know, signed an agreement with the Jack Ma Foundation in China to fund uh, English language learning. Neat. So the, you, that was one of my questions later about the business model because you're not for profit; it's free education, and so the, the business model is essentially sponsorship. Um, so the, the, I'd say two business models. I mean, so one of the things you know that we're keen on is to make Idrak as sustainable as possible. And I'd say you know Idrak is a startup with a not-for-profit business model. Uh, most of our revenue, uh, sort of we think of it as revenue, comes from business-to-business deals. So that's usually software service where we use the open edX technology that we've customized and sort of airbized, and we can talk more about that, to offer it as a platform, as a service to other entities. So we've worked with the Ministry of Labor in Saudi Arabia. Uh, we've worked with the Prime Minister's office in Dubai and uh, worked with other governments and entities across the Middle East where we've really helped them come up with a white-labeled version of the platform. Uh, another sort of add-on service to that software service work is sort of content development. So we do, uh, or sort of because we've been very keen about creating a mar- the market and sort of making sure there's high-quality content, uh, we've spent a lot of time in building our in-house capacity in terms of video production, editing, etc. We have our own studio. So we do content production for these entities at a premium, sometimes hosted on their own platforms. Sometimes if it aligns with our content and they want the reach of, you know, Two million plus learners will have it on our own uh, platform. I'd say that is sort of how the revenue, and we sort of we usually supplement that with generous grants from uh, different entities. When we first set up Idraq, it may be sort of noteworthy to mention, it's actually, you know, we got a very generous grant from the Crown Prince's Court in Abu Dhabi, uh, and again, supplemented by support from Kuwait and Lebanon. So that's sort of the grant funded that really funding that seeded the idea. Uh, but then sort of on top of that, we try to develop these revenue streams. In the future, potentially, you know, for certain specializations and not access to the content, but access to certification, we might charge certain learners. But again, none of that is set in Estonia. It strikes me, listening to you, Nafez, is that 
you've got a number of different countries that are on board with you. And, of course, there are many more Arab-speaking countries. Is it some level a notion of pacification and collaboration? Is that also uh, an undercurrent mission? Because there's so much divisiveness, let's call it religious, nationalist, uh, regional, you know, money. Is this one way we can find a, a path to more cooperation? I think that's a, that's a fantastic question. I, I think that there is an underlying idealistic pan-Arab notion at the drug. I'd say, you know, if, if you look at our team, you know, it, it's based in Jordan, but really serving uh, the larger Arab world. You know, the 40% of our learners come from Egypt. Uh, I'd say... N- 80% of our learners are outside Jordan. And on, on our team itself, you know, we've had people from Iraq, we have people from Egypt, Palestine, Jordanians, uh, sort of different sort of members of the team. So there is that idealistic, I'd say, pan-Arab notion that's underlying everything that Iraq does and sort of part of Her Majesty's vision to make this and mm-hmm. really the platform for Arab learners online. The other thing that I'd say is we've also realized that through online learning platforms, I'm you know, taking very specific uh, courses, we're able to create cross-border or curate cross-border communities around areas of interest. So we did a course you know, on, on the architecture and design of the modern Arab city. And you ended up you know, having people from uh, you know, Jordan, work with people in Syria, with people in Egypt, Bahrain, UAE, etc., all sort of work together around specific themes. And because sort of the Arab world is so diverse, it's very interesting to curate these communities. You know, are the mutual friend uh, you know, that introduces, you know, we're working with him uh, on a course around modern Arab art. And, and that's, you know, an area where we think is obviously sort of much less political and also, you know, really able to curate these, these communities and build those bridges uh, across these divides. Cool. So you, you mentioned uh, 40% of the learners are Egyptian. Can you share with us, you said roughly 2 million learners on your platform, a little bit more the socio-demographics about them or, or you know, female populations? Yeah, no, no, of course, of course. So I'd say 40% of learners come from Egypt and then sort of in terms of order, it's probably, you know, Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, uh, Morocco, Algeria, and sort of that fluctuates. I'd say the only thing that's really sort of been always there is that proportional to the sort of, you know, the 100 million people in Egypt, proportional to that, always the number one country where sort of learners come from has been Egypt. Uh, on top of that, in terms of average age, the average age of a learner on Idraq is around 21, 22 years old. It's 60% male, 40% female. Having said that, I will say that female learners complete courses at a little over double the rate that male learners do. Uh, so male learners maybe start as many courses as females, but females always, I'd say, complete uh, a double that figure. The majority of learners on our platform, and again, this will change now that we've in- introduced yeah. the K-12 segment, sure. do not have a bachelor's degree. Uh, I'd say maybe a little over 50% do not have a bachelor's degree. So for them, this is you know the first form of, in some cases, higher education or further education. Um, yeah, so that's, I guess, a, sort of an overall overview of... Happy to dig deeper. That's good. So you've got um, this platform, and, and, and clearly there are other MOOCs. What I'd be interested to know is what is the state of the art of the MOOC, and, and what is transferable in an Arab uh, language platform as opposed to English-speaking? Let's just keep it simple that way. And, and maybe what adaptations did you have to do in order to make it more appropriate for a pan-Arab world? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think obviously there are a lot of the, maybe some of the cultural 
considerations that, that you need to take into uh, mind. And some of those are, are simple as, you know, not speaking dollars and speaking sort of more dirhams, dinars, uh, currency. Some of it is sort of cultural in terms of uh, the representation of men and women and sort of that interaction. But I say the more interesting or sort of nuances around some of the pedagogy and, and the level of the content. When we first started off, I think, maybe also a bit idealistic, saying you know, we want to bring the Harvards, MITs, Yales, Oxfords of the world to learners in the Arab world in Arabic. Uh, what we quickly realized is there's you know relatively strong positive correlation between your level of education and your mastery of the English language. So if you're able to do a Yale course or an MIT course, you can probably already do it in English. So if I'm going to offer this to learners in the Arab world, I need to sort of offer it at, at, at that their level. To give a concrete example, we translated and offered this course with edX and MIT uh, introduction to physics. And we're working with some professors in Jordan to localize it. And the question to us is, you know, is this like two years worth of content? We said, no, this is just one semester at MIT. And they're like, well, actually, you know, we actually usually spend two years covering this kind of content. So, I mean, we still offered it as one semester and, you know, around 300 learners completed that course, but that was less than five, less than 3% of learners that had signed up for that course. So we learned from that and other experiences that, you know, you need to segment and sequence the content and, and meet sort of le- meet learners where they are. Yeah, because presumably, you know, just to break the, the people at MIT already coming in there, that's a category of person you know, the sort of 1,600 on the SATs and so on and so forth, and also, you know, ready to become a bachelor, whereas a lot of these people maybe not have had access before, and so they're not quite as used to that speed. Exactly, and I'd say, you know, this is where I'm hoping, because one of the, I'd say, in my mind, more important criticisms of the online learning or MOOC movement, if we want to still use that term, uh, is that the average typical learner already has a university degree, right. is white, male, etc. And I think that's partly because we're offering those courses that attract that higher level of education. Right. So we're broadening the gap between the haves and the have-nots. But we're, if, we're, if we're able to offer courses that are more at the level of the learners that need it, so more courses on creating a resume, uh, more remedial physics education courses, etc., that's how you can use it to bridge the gap. Uh, the other interesting, I'd say, idea we've been thinking about is sort of trying to offer or use online learning for maybe sort of more at-risk or, sort of, for example, refugee populations. And then sort of we've learned to break the automatic association between, you know, somebody uses Facebook, WhatsApp, oh, they can learn online. That's not true. Uh, if a learner in the Arab world has access to Facebook and WhatsApp, that's more often than not literally their internet. The internet to them is just Facebook and WhatsApp. And that's obviously not conducive to doing anything really online other than sort of maybe bi-directional communication so you need to spend two to three hours and that's sort of we've introduced these workshops in collaboration with the norwegian refugee council care unhcr to uh introduce them to how do you use an email how do you learn online how do you search google uh because a lot of these people when they actually go to search they're searching in their facebook feed mm-hmm. so they're obviously it's not conducive to learning anything new mm. yeah. mm-hmm, for sure all right let's um just and, and maybe this is general culture as well when you're doing a site in Arabic, as opposed to English, of course, you have to read right to left. Mm-hmm. What are the other intricacies uh, that are involved in, in making a website, much less a, a learning platform? I'd say, I mean, um, unfortunately, I'd say, you know, the internet or sort of 
a big part of modern technology is not set up in a way to accommodate anything that's not a Romance or a Latin-based language. So I'd say on the engineering side, there's a lot that you need to do sort of around Unicode support to support characters and, and I'd say sort of data structures perhaps, if I can use that, uh, that are not, you know, Latin script-based, etc. Uh, so that itself is its own sort of engineering feed. And then I'd say there are sort of visual sort of design uh, aspects that are more appealing to sort of Arabic-speaking learners than sort of Western learners. And then again, that sometimes, you know, will differ by country, will differ by geography. You know, learners in the GCC will prefer certain visuals versus people in North Africa versus people in the Levant. So that's all sort of things that, that you need to factor in. So I'd say. Just before you go on, so if I if, if you do this like Mathematics 101, do you have to have an Egyptian flag, a Syrian flag? I mean, is there a localization at that level with images that are more appropriate and, and some vocabulary which may be more local? Uh, that, 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 that's a great question. So I think, fortunately so far with the three cur- curricula we're working on, the curriculum is relatively s- similar. The sequencing is different. So you maybe have to bring something earlier on in the semester, uh, something maybe later on in the semester, maybe the beginning of the next academic year. But the content itself is relatively similar. In terms of the Arabic language, with the K-12, we're trying to be as stick as close as possible to sort of modern standard Arabic, but not sort of, rig, sort of rigid modern standard Arabic, closer to what people would hear on the news or on the radio, so that they'd be more the familiar. Yeah, uh, a bit more familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. All right, so uh, in, in terms of the way you create your content, you said you have your own studio in, in-house, which clearly you know, means you can control what you're doing. Talk us through your process of creating this content, you know, and hiring in the Harvard uh, professors, one angle, but that's not feasible and certainly probably not sustainable at some level. How do you go about selecting, curating, ensuring that there is a high quality and, and who's to know what is the best quality? Uh, yeah, I mean, so, so it's, it's, it's not an easy question to answer. And I'd say there's, to be clear, there's a fair amount of subjectivity in that. But we'll usually, you know, at the end of uh, at the end of each year and beginning of the following year, you know, we'll refine or sort of update our content strategy, you know, figure out, you know, what is the content we want based on employer demand, based on sort of the surveys and focus groups we've done with learners to understand what content we want to invest in and sort of bring online. And sort of we're very keen to use as much of our funding as we can to create openly licensed content, that sort of creative commons, because we see a big part of our role really in sort of making that market. And, and we can talk a bit more about that. You know, one of the things we invested in is localizing and airbizing the open edX technology. And now we're seeing some of those dividends come back in other learners using the t- same technology to set up uh, for-profit and not-for-profit uh, entities and, and, and businesses. So once we've set that content strategy, then we have sort of a course management team that pretty much goes online through our existing networks at this point in relationships with these universities because, you know, we work with a lot of people in the diaspora. They'll say, you know, we need uh, an expert on this subject that can deliver this content. Uh, And sort of, again, we'll have specific criteria for is it a course that's geared more towards sort of the workplace and sort of how many years of experience that this person needs to have is it sort of a more an academic subject and sort of does this person have the credentials? Have they presented before? And then it's about sort of also finding the balance between their ability to or credibility to speak to the content, but then be able to present it really well. You know, in certain instances, if 
the professor isn't able to be as engaging online, then you do want to sort of supplement that with the right level of animation, content, etc. And sometimes maybe bring in, you know, step in uh, actors, etc. to deliver that content as long as sort of vetted and validated. And then you sort of get to the actual, once you've done the course outline and the template, you go through the actual sort of media production process. We usually, you know, film them, they fly into Jordan, we film them over sort of four to five days, edit it, launch it, market it. And get the learners. Wow! So, so I didn't realize that was in Jordan. But so you, you do have to fly people in, of course, and have. I'd say in, in most cases, you know, it's 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 we have much more control over the, the quality of the content when it's in Jordan. Uh, we have in, in the past, and we continue to do, you know, film in other countries. So we often we film quite often in Dubai because that's you know a very big hub where a lot of people are. We filmed in the U.S. We filmed here in the U.K. But generally, in terms of cost effectiveness and quality, Jordan is, uh, even with the, the cost of flights, is, is, is much uh, uh, better for us. And it also has a, a relatively interesting hub of talent around sort of media production mm-hmm. and video production that's easy to tap into. And in terms of the profiles of these teachers, uh, going back to the socio-demographics of the learners, what's the type of demographic you have? Because let's say the N, K through 12 the general in the West, anyway, it's going to be mostly women who are teaching. Professors, of course, it skews differently. How how does that look out for you? I mean, I'd, I'd say it's it's quite varied, and, and I don't know if we've been sort of intentional beyond you know trying to make sure that there are sort of a fair amount of women represented in a lot of niche areas. So whether it's STEM, whether it's computer science, and so we have an artificial intelligence course coming up. We're very keen, very lucky to be able to work with a professor at the Princess Sumaya University of Technology. Nice. Uh, sort of we haven't sort of, I'd say, tried to sway it in any way. I'd say you're probably correct. In terms of the K-12 content, a fair amount of it has been sort of created and produced with women, but not intentionally. When it comes to online education, you know, I, I have, of course, been working in that space and and previously I used to do a lot more in real life education, but what is how do you gauge in engage engagement ability of mm-hmm. of a teacher? You're 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 probably vetting them from afar. You do a Skype message. Oh, and you want to do this? this? Is what we're going to take? And then at some point you're like, oh, this guy's really boring. Um, yeah, I mean, so so we've been you know very very fortunate you know to to work with a lot of people that have you know taught before some of them taught online before some of them you know have spoken at public forums before so it's, it's really about, about you know doing a lot of background research as well you know uh, and ideally and in most cases you know people have given talks that you can you know see on youtube and in in, in this modern day and age you know with skype etc you can get a better feel for it if somebody's in jordan or if we're able to attend you know a conference or something that they're speaking at we try to drop in uh to, to, to validate some of that and, and again it's 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 been it's, it's not perfect i'll you know i'll say that openly you know it's, it's hit and miss but uh, so far I, I do think you know we've been very very fortunate to work with some really engaging very thoughtful and you know very very smart uh arabic speakers that are you know, based in the region or based uh, in the diaspora how do you quantify how many courses you have do you do by courses by hours yeah. um so we have i think a little over a hundred courses on the platform at this point on average, each course is probably five to six hours of learning, uh, video learning. So that's, you know, 600 hours of uh, video almost, maybe a bit less than that. Um, so that's sort of one way sort of we measure. But I guess what we're more interested in is, you know, the, how beneficial that is. So, uh, you know, we look at the number of learners that engage in a course, and that's, you know, learners that 
attempt at, at least you know two or three problem sets uh, at the end of the week, uh, and it, it, learners don't always have to complete a course because uh, we've done you know a fair amount of surveying before learners start a course, and I'd say at least fifty percent of them join the course without the intention to complete. You know, there's a specific uh, segment or a specific week that they're interested in, and then obviously we're also interested in the number of learners that complete. So I'd say from the two million learners on the platform. A little under 200,000 have already completed certificates, specializations, etc., and those sorts of unique specializations, so to say. Uh, so those are the general metrics we look about. Obviously, we also uh, care about sort of on a monthly basis. So on a monthly basis, as of now, we have, I'd say, 530,000 monthly active users. So that's nice. what we're looking at. Yeah. What about data? Is there a data play that you are looking at, and, and what sort of value is there in that data as far as you're concerned? Um, I, I think that there's a lot of value in that data, and I, and I think that there's a lot of value in that data because it is a key to unlocking, which, which we still haven't done enough on, sort of how do Arabic speakers learn online, going back to some of your previous questions, how do those sort of learning patterns differ from, you know, uh, maybe sort of somebody in the UK or somebody in the US and how they learn online. I think Harvard, MIT have probably led the pack so far in analyzing some of, or at least making it public, and maybe sort of Coursera and others have looked at that as well, but as far as I'm aware, Harvard and MIT have been sort of, done the most job in making that some of that analysis public on sort of their global learner base, but I haven't seen anything segmented, and I think we have a lot of, we're sitting on a lot of data right now that we can sort of look into and dig deeper into. We've tried to invest here and there in getting that out uh, and sort of look into it, but we've not succeeded. We're talking to some interesting partners in the U.S. right now about sort of how we can open source some of that data and let other researchers come in to make sure sort of, again, all the privacy uh, considerations are taken care of, but in a way that allows us to synthesize the analysis better. Nifty. So last uh, area of um, inquisition is the way you're marketing this. I mean, because obviously it's not-for-profit, but there are many more people who could be out there. And how are you doing that? And what are your challenges about making it happen? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, that's a very, you know, relevant and important question. And I'd say, you know, we're very, very fortunate, fortunate that, you know, we have a patron that's, you know, um, has a huge following online. She certainly and, does. And, you know, a great sort of, uh, I'd say, uh, ability to push and uh, market the content. I think that really, I'd say, you know, helped us seed or create that momentum. And we've been trying to build on that momentum very actively, both sort of in offline and online engagement. I'd say, you know, online, Facebook is still sort of king probably in their world. We're starting to see a lot more engagement on Instagram, obviously. But I think given that this sort of learning and learning online, we want people to learn on the app, on, on their phones, but also sort of take time uh, on their desktops to learn. I'd say, you know, Facebook is, is, is a big marketing channel for us. We're also trying to you know, do a lot of, I'd say, offline engagement. We have a Idrak Ambassadors program uh, that... It's basically a volunteer-led program where people, you know, organize, you know, learning groups, study groups, get other people involved and engaged. So it's a mix of really online and offline. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you're really competing with everything else that's online. And, and we also have to say that, you know, you're also competing for the attention for, of a other, uh, other uh, learning platforms in Arabic that are also online. And for us, again, the more content out there, the more choice, the better. That's what we're really trying to create. Yeah. It's a cooperation world. Tell us about how you animate that community. Are they cross frontiers, and do you have a? Is it part? Is it within the app? How, how do you keep them going? Uh, I mean, so I'd say there are different efforts. I, th- I think you know gamification is something we've been looking at more and more. Uh, we've actually just recently done a course on you know the principles of gamification. You know, how do you hmm. keep people? You know. 
who completes the most courses, who gets through the content first, uh, who uh, is showing, you know, the, one of the more interesting badges and sort of, I guess, metrics to look at for me is, you know, who is more supportive or most supportive on the forums in terms of helping uh, their other learners. So I say it's about finding, you know, what excites them and sort of trying to incentivize people to do more of that. See, so um, what does the future hold? What is Nafez's vision of the future? Uh, I mean, I think... Um, very excited, obviously, and maybe a bit cliche about sort of what we can do with, you know, some of the artificial intelligence uh, coming in and how we can use that. I mean, I think natural language processing in Arabic is still um, far behind, you know, where it is in maybe English and Chinese and other languages. But I think, you know, as we start making advances there, we'll be able to better use that in especially for us, you know, how do we use that for education and for learning? Uh, and, and I will say, I mean, I, I do hope, you know, that the future brings uh, as collaborative and as exciting a future for the Arab world on the ground as it is online right now because I, I do think it's a very exciting time for uh, the internet uh, online in the Arab world. Sweet. So how, uh, Nafaz, can people track you down, participate uh, if they feel like uh, checking it out and or even sponsoring? What, what are the best ways to contact you? Yeah, sure. So, so, I mean, I'm pretty active on Twitter at Endakak, uh, N-D-A-K-K-A-K. Uh, our website, you know, idrak.org, E-D-R-A-K.org. And, of course, the Quinwani Foundation's uh, website, which is, I guess, shorter than all of these. So it's just qrf.org. Uh, All right, well, thank you for coming on the show, Nafaz. Looking forward to following what you do. Obviously, I'm going to have to brighten up my, my own Arabic if I want to know more. But um, anyway, pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Pleasure is mine. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Josh Sachs's finger paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mentioned in your lack of Oh!
My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.